0: Shortly after, Avram and family arrive in Eretz Yisrael, arrive in Canaan. They suffer a devastating famine in the land. And therefore, Avram chooses to leave Eretz Yisrael to take his family and to go down to Egypt, where they are hoping to secure provisions so that the family can be sustained. As they're approaching, Avram is very worried that the Egyptians will notice Sarah's beauty. If they know that they are married, they will kill Avram. And therefore, he suggests to Sarah that she lie and say that, in fact, they are brother and sister hopefully thereby sparing Avraham's life. In fact, that's exactly what happened in the sense of Sar's beauty is clearly noticed. She's kidnapped, she's taken to Paro's palace, and she's only released after Hashem afflicts Paro and whole household with a disease. The story ends with Paro being upset about Avraham's subterfuge, banishing Avraham and his household from Egypt. And this story, fascinating as it is, really presents two questions, which perhaps ultimately are one. Was it right for Avram to leave Eretz Yisrael? Who told him to do that? He had been told Lecha, to go to Eretz Yisrael. Whoever said he had a right to leave. And secondly, and perhaps more problematic, how could Avram endanger Sarah's life? How could he put Sarah in such mortal danger? That's not what we would expect any husband to do, let alone somebody at Sadik, a moral exemplar on the level of Avram. So really two questions that are, in fact, one... How can we understand, should we justify Avram's behavior? Is it possible that he made mistakes in this story? These questions, as powerful as they are, not surprisingly, therefore, lead to a very interesting machlokes in the Mepharshim. Ramban, very famously, as well as perhaps less well-known, Rabbein Bachaye, but really he's echoing the same approach of the Ramban, Ramban says, yes, in fact, Avram made a mistake. It was a sin for him to leave Eretz Yisrael. He should have trusted Hakkar Baruch Hu, that his family would have been okay, that Hashem would have found a way to take care of Avram and family despite the famine. Moreover, the Ramban adds very uh, ominously that because of this mistake or Avram chose to leave Eretz Yisrael, later his descendants will have no choice. They will forcibly be exiled from the land of Eretz Yisrael to Egypt where unfortunately they will suffer and ultimately that will go back to being a punishment for Avram's behavior in this parsha. This powerful critique of Ramban and Rabbi Mechai is in opposite, in opposition, I should say, to many other Mepharshim who defend Avram's decision to leave Eretz Yisrael. For example, the Abar assumes that Avram did nothing wrong. After all, the famine and going down to Egypt are part of the famous ten Nisionot, the ten tests that Avram was tested with. And, says Abarbanel, since we have a tradition from Chazal that Avram passed all of these tests, how can we say that he sinned? Moreover, logically, he says, it's not fair to criticize Avram. He had no reason to think there was any prohibition in leaving Eretz Yisrael. Just because he was told to go, once upon a time, to Eretz Yisrael, doesn't mean he's never allowed to leave. Moreover, we know the Torah itself says, behem. It's a halacha and a Jewish value. The life takes precedent in almost all situations. It certainly takes precedent over living in Eretz Yisrael, and given the fact that the Torah itself emphasizes in our Parsha, ki the famine was exceedingly difficult. It wasn't just a, a light famine, it was a heavy, painful, life-and-death famine. Therefore, it's understandable, says Abar Benel, that Avram had no other choice but to leave Eretz Canaan and go to Mitzrayim, and therefore he does not think it's fair to criticize Avram for that decision. In terms of the second question about putting Sarah in harm's way, here too, Ramban and Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar are critical of Avram's behavior. Here too, they say, he should have had more trust, or betochen in Hashem, and Hashem would have figured out a way to get them out of the problem. He should not have lied and put Sarah in such a difficulty in harm's way. But here too, as well, most other Mepharshim disagree with the critique of Ramban and Rabbi Nebuchadnezzar, and they defend Avram's behavior in one form or another. Both the tour and the Barbanel just kind of state categorically that it cannot be that Avraham made a mistake. He made the best of a difficult situation. Moreover, Abarbanel says, if Avraham had sinned, presumably Hashem would have told him that he made a mistake. And yet we're going to read shortly thereafter in Parakaf that the next time they're traveling... Avram does the exact same thing. He tells Sarah once again to say he, that they're brother and sister. Moreover, Avram's own son Yitzhak does the same thing with his wife, with Rivka, which we'll read about in Perikah If it had been a sin, Hashem would have told them they never would have repeated the mistake. Yitzhak wouldn't have done it. The fact that we have this happening two other times in the next few Prokim indicates, says Abarbanel in his opinion, it must be that Avram did nothing wrong. Despite that assurance and that categorical statement by both Tour and Abarbanel, they don't really explain what Avram was actually thinking. Other Mepharsham, however, add that extra point. For example, the Chizkuni explains that Avram did nothing wrong because he had a plan, a solid plan. That He would say that their brother and sister, and if they then asked, wow, your beautiful sister, she married, he would say yes, but the husband is in some faraway place. We don't know where he is. He has abandoned her. And then, interestingly enough, that would actually protect and save Sarah because it seems from the Chizkuni that he understands that in that, in that time and place, in that ancient world, To kill a man in order to marry his wife, that was Mekubal. That would be acceptable. But to just take a woman who's still married and the husband is still alive somewhere, that they never would have done. To kill him, he would have. But to just take Sarah, if they can't find and kill the husband, they wouldn't have done that. So by saying there's some husband who's undefined and they don't know where he's in in some unspecified location, so ironically and surprisingly as it may sound in our ethical uh, hierarchy, uh, that they wouldn't have done. They wouldn't take her if they couldn't find and kill the husband. And since they wouldn't know who the husband was or where he was, they wouldn't be able to kill her. That was Chizkuni's plan. Avram's plan according to Chizkuni. Sforno says something very interesting, slightly differently. He says Avram was trying to delay and buy time with the hope that when they saw how beautiful Sarah was, not one... But multiple, various Egyptians would all want to marry her. and They'd all be vying for a hand in marriage. And to do so, they'd all be giving Avram various gifts as the older brother, trying to bribe or entice him to give them his sister in marriage. And certainly they never would hurt him this whole time. Plus, while this negotiation was happening, presumably with multiple people, Avram would be able to quickly buy the provisions, and then they'd quickly be able to get out of Dodge they'd leave the country. Everything would be okay. It was a great plan, says the Sforno but it all fell apart when they got to Egypt because right away they just took Saru to Paro's palace and his whole expected plan never came to fruition. Even though Avraham is initially mentioned at the end of last week's Torah reading, Avraham's more formal and dramatic entree into the biblical stage begins at the start of this week's Parsha in Parshas T'slach as we read the famous and still dramatic call, Avram Avram is called to leave his birthplace, his homeland, his family, to go to the land which Hashem will show him, of course, taking him eventually to the land of Eretz Yisrael. Moreover, we read about not only the journey of Avram, but eventually the promise to make Avraham and his descendants into a great nation. Avraham, you will be my destiny in this world, your family, that your legacy will be to bring Hashem's name to the world, and I will make you great promises Hashem. This incredible, dramatic, and exciting entree of Avraham into History onto the biblical stage is, of course, memorable and consequential. However, the Ramban notes that there seems to be something very peculiar in these psukim. For all that the Torah reveals, what is most striking is what we are not told. We are not told, we are never told in the Torah text itself anything about Avram's life story before this selection. Most importantly, we have never been told what Avraham did to merit this divine chosenness. This Torah speaks about Avraham's future. It never reveals his past. And of course, what is so significant and shocking about this is that, first of all, with other heroes, such as Noah, we are told that he is an Ish Sadiq. We are told his bona fides, his credentials, before we hear about his consequence on the world stage. And secondly... This is a radical shift, as no longer is Hashem dealing with the entire world on a universal level, level, but Lechelcha marks the shift to a more particularistic approach. Hashem's light, Hashem's name, will be revealed to the world through a particular person and his family. But we never know, we never learn it all in the Torah text. Why Avraham? Why is he the chosen man? This is the incredibly penetrating question of the Ramban. The Ramban himself gives the following answer. He says, well, of course, we do know much about Avraham from the Midrashim, all about how he discovered Hashem, how he fought with the Baalei Avodah of his day, rejecting in a very proactive way, and even a confrontational way, one could say, the Avodah and the paganism of his day. And that made Avraham a religious and spiritual hero. Of course, Ramban realizes that that begs the question. Those stories are wonderful, but they're only in the Medrash. They're not in the Torah text. Why does the Torah itself not cite any of these midrashim? To which the Ramban answers that generally the Torah is very, very reticent to mention anything that is about Avodah Zarah, anything which is in any way heretical or against the Torah's core and axiomatic beliefs. And therefore, since it's not really crucial to anything in the story per se, the Torah did not want to mention these stories about Avram, because willy-nilly they would have required a reference to Avodah Zarah. This is the Ramban's answer. And whether one uh, loves it or, uh, to be honest, I find it a little bit uh, underwhelming uh, with all the respect, of course, to the Ramban, the Svasemes takes us in a completely different direction, in a direction which I find to be incredibly remarkable, particularly, potentially life-altering if one really would internalize the message of the Tzvah and certainly inspiring. And the predicate of the approach of the Tzvah is a comment of the Zohar HaKadosh. The Zohar HaKadosh tells us that the call of Lech Lecha was actually not exclusively said to Avram Avinu. We've always thought, certainly the simple reading of the P'sukim, that Avram was already chosen with those words Lech Lecha says the Zohar, in fact, the words lach were said to the entire world. However, in the words of the Zohar, v'al'inun d'naimei shinsa b'choreihen v'lyadei v'lo mistaklon. Woe is to those who are sleeping and not seeing or unaware, not hearing and knowing what is going on around them. In other words, says the Svasemis, you see from the Zohar, that the world was approached the world was on the receiving end. Everyone, the whole universe, could have heard the word Lech lecha. It was a call that went out to anyone. However, no one else heard the call. What made Avraham great, says the Sfas Emes, as he works off of and develops this idea of the Zohar, what makes Avraham great was that he heard the call. Shama Kibel, says the Sfas Emes. He heard it, and he took it as a personal call. He took it as a personal responsibility. Anyone could have heard it. But Avraham did, and he acted on it. The call went out to everyone, but it's Avraham who heard it. And therefore continues the Sfas Emes, when just a few psikkim later, after Hashem finishes his promise, in Pasach Dalid we read, Avraham." From the moment Hashem called him, Avraham saddled up, and he went on the journey. He heard, and he acted on it. Says the Sfas Emes, the whole premise of the question was wrong. We asked, why doesn't the Torah tell us why Avraham merited to be chosen? Says the the Torah does tell us why he was chosen. Ze ha-shevach shayemuchan l'kabel The very fact, the very fact that he heard and acted on Hashem's call, that itself is the reason why he deserved to be chosen. I'm sure, I have no doubt, that Tzvah accepts and believes all of those amazing stories we've learned since we were little kids that are taught in the Medrash. But nevertheless, says Tzvah Avram could have been rewarded for that. But that's not why he was chosen to be the man, because of that. He was chosen not because of what he had done in the past. He had chosen what he had He was chosen because of what he did right then, by Avraham. He heard the call, Sham of and he acted on it. Zeh Hashem This itself is why he merited. And this, of course, is a lesson, says of for all of us. Hashem is calling often in many profound ways. The question is well, whether we will be truly students and descendants of Avram. Or will we too hear the call of Hashem? Our Parsa, of, of course, begins with the famous charge, Avram is given the command to leave his homeland, his birthplace, his father's home, and go into the land, Hashem says, in which I will show you. Of course, we know this is a reference to the land of Israel. The tradition that we have from Chazal, quoted among other places in Avos Rabbi is that this is one of the ten tests that Hashem chose to test Avraham with. The test to leave his homeland and go on the journey eventually to the land of Eretz Yisrael. However, if we think about it, it's not clear why this is considered such a great test or even a test at all. After all, we read in Pasuk Beis, where the Torah tells us that Hashem promised Avram that this would be of great success. gadol, <speaking in Hebrew> If Hashem told you, I want you to pick up and move, I don't know, for example, from New York uh, to Los Angeles, but don't worry, it's going to be great, you'll be successful, become wealthy and famous. But, you know, you are leaving your family in the neighborhood you grew up in, you know, <laughs> would that be really considered a test? Even if I told you to move from uh, New York to Israel, uh, but I promised you and guaranteed you great success, fame, and fortune in Israel, would that be really an Esayon, a great Esayon that you would deserve praise for? Moreover, we know from Chazal, and the Ramban, for example, uh, speaks about this, it wasn't exactly like things were going well for Avraham where he was. He was in Or and it was terrible for him there. Aside from the really life-threatening situations, which we'll get to in a moment, but the Ramban here says that uh, they were him, they were him, etc. They were making life miserable for Avram. He was an outcast there. So again, we can reformulate and even strengthen the question. If Hashem tells you, this place we are living in now, where you're miserable, and it's terrible, and you're struggling, but don't worry, if you travel really, really far away, I'll make you rich and famous, and you'll have everything you want in the world... And your children will be multiplied and uh, you know prosperous for all uh, future generations. Would that be considered such a horrible test? Seems to be quite uh, quite difficult to understand. And of course, the second part, of the question, or perhaps another way of asking the question is: whatever level of nisayon you think it was for Avram to pick up and move, but we know from Chazal, Rashi tells us in Parshas Noah, Perch Yud Pasach Chavches, uh, the famous story of the Kishon Aish how he had destroyed his father Terach's idols and his father had reported him to Nimrod and he was forced to declare his belief in Abu and rejection of his newly found belief in monotheism and Avram refused. Even at the risk of death, he was thrown into a fiery furnace. He survives because Shem made a miracle, but he was, you know, that's one of the tests perhaps of Avraham, no question about it. And yet, it seems peculiar that that test is not even mentioned at all in the Torah. We know about it only from the Midrashim. We know about it from Rashi. But this test of Avram going down to Eretz Yisrael, the Torah spends so much time on, not only the initial command, which we read in the opening of the Parsha, but the whole journey to Eretz Yisrael, the challenges in Eretz Yisrael, going down to Egypt. The whole Avram story is, you know, it's interesting and it's up and down, but... None of it would compare, you would think, to having to give up your life and being thrown into a fiery furnace, and yet that doesn't get any mention in the Torah. It's just hinted at, and Rashi picks up on the hint. And the ups and downs of Avram's journey to Israel and to and from, that gets multiple parshios and tens if not hundreds of psukim. What is going on here? Simcha Zisal in his very important modern classic, Sam Derech, here in our Parsha, explains as follows. He says, in life, there can be two types of challenges of nisiones. There are things which come unexpectedly, they're completely out of the ordinary routine, and they can be quite dramatic, calling on us to consider massive sacrifices, considering even our highest values, perhaps even to give up our own lives. These things are very out of the ordinary, very rare. Some people may go through all of life without having anything really like this, and even if we do, can be very, very rare, and Senator Francis while these things can and sometimes do happen and as hard and as painful and as demanding and as challenging as they might be, says generally speaking people, even people who aren't considered great prior to that by any standard, but people generally will summon the momentary courage and conviction and do what's right despite the risk perhaps to reputation financial standing, and even in extreme cases, their actual life. After all, says Rafim look at Jewish history, throughout Jewish history, from the ancient to medieval to even modern period, so many Jews, even the simplest of Jews, were willing to give up their life, to sacrifice the quality of their life, to risk everything during the moments of great persecution of Xeros and Shemad. Because even though these are very difficult and demanding challenges, but when you have a challenge like that, there's a certain, I guess you could say, spiritual adrenaline that kicks in, and people are willing to rise to the challenge. However, says there's a second type of challenge, the everyday challenges of Vodash Hashem. Day in and day out, there are challenges making it difficult for us to do the right thing, tempting us to do the wrong thing. It says Semcha Zissl, obviously, each in their own one-on-one in a vacuum, none of them compared to the first type of challenges we described. However, in a certain other way, these are actually more difficult because it's, in a certain sense, more difficult to overcome challenges time after time, especially when each one of those challenges is not so objectively demanding that those challenges don't necessarily inspire that level of what I called before a spiritual adrenaline, you know, to get up for minion to not speak Lashon Hara when your friends are doing so. Uh, to avoid eating at a place even though you're hungry or it looks delicious because maybe it doesn't have the right Hashkacha. Uh, endless examples. Um, to learn Torah instead of watching the game. To go to a Shir instead of whatever. The same people who, in theory, could have given up their life if they were forced to can't withstand these much easier tests on a daily basis. It says to some That's why, even after the Nisyonus of Orkazdim, Hashem still tested Avram with the journey to Eretz Yisrael and the famines, etc. Because even though Hashem had promised Avram the good life when he would get to Eretz Yisrael, but through that journey, there were many day-to-day challenges that came up. And that's why this type of accomplishment gets more airtime, so to speak, in the Torah than Orkazdim in the fiery furnace. It's a greater accomplishment, and it's more relevant and important lesson to our daily life when we're challenged like this. When Avraham was 99 years old, Hashem approaches him, makes a covenant with him, and tells him, Halech lefana, you should walk before me, ve'yei tamim. You should be tamim. What does that mean to be tamim? Some understand it or translate it as perfect, but it's solely a vague term, yet undefined in the Torah text, somewhat unclear. And therefore it's fascinating to study a beautiful presentation here in our Parsha from the Beis HaLevi. Reis posits that what this Pasuk is communicating and what the concept of Tamim means in general in Tanakh and in Chazal is We do what Hashem wants, we do what Hashem commands and we don't make that dependent on our own personal investigations or understanding our analyses of the why. We do mitzvos because we're commanded without questioning or trying to understand why? The Basilevi brings as support for this definition of the term a medrash in Tehillim, commenting on the pasuk in Perak Kuf Yud Tesaf Tehillim, which says, Ashrei Tmime Derech, praise are those who are Tmimim, and says the medrash this refers specifically to the Dor HaMidbar. And the medrash elaborates that the Dor HaMidbar, those who received the Torah when they went out of Mitzrayim, they were given various mitzvot. The, the medrash lists a few of them, for example, the prohibitions governing the mixing of meat and milk. And says the Medrash, even though this is a mitzvah which you wouldn't necessarily understand at all, certainly not at first blush, but the people did not ask why we can't cook meat and milk together. Just immediately they accepted the authority and the binding nature of the mitzvos and the Torah. Says the Beis Alevi, we see here from this Medrash, this idea, that the idea of Tamim, the idea of Tamimus, is accepting mitzvot even without knowing the reason for them, and even if we did know the reason, not making our observance of mitzvot contingent on those reasons. The Beis then asks, on his own definition, he asks on himself an obvious and powerful question. Says the Beis but aren't we obligated? Aren't we commanded to study, to understand all the details of mitzvot? Aren't we even commanded, according to some, or encouraged to understand the reasons for mitzvot? So doesn't that contradict this exhortation here in our parsha and in other sources to be a tamim, which we're now defining as doing things without knowing the reason? Says the Beis Alevi, we have to make a profound, subtle, but significant, nonetheless, distinction between learning and doing. Says the Beis Alevi, in in you 100%, there absolutely is a value and even a mitzvah to study the details and the reasons Four mitzvahs. Says the Beis Levi. yes, part of the mitzvah of Talmud Torah, very central mitzvah. Part of that central mitzvah is to understand the details and the reasons for mitzvahs. However, says the Beis Levi, we have to make the distinction between when we're studying and when we're performing the mitzvahs. When we study, we want to understand everything. And the more we understand, the better. However, he says, when it comes to doing the mitzvah, when it comes to actually doing the mitzvah, then we do it not because of the reasons, rather, When we're doing the mitzvah, we're doing it not for this or that reason, even if we understand the reason, even if it makes sense to us, it doesn't matter. And we certainly do it even if we don't understand the reason. There's a distinction, says the Beis between action and learning between deed and thinking, if you will. And therefore, we have to, so to speak, live on both planes. When we're learning, yes, study and understand the reasons. But when we're doing and performing the mitzvot, we do it completely disconnected to and certainly not contingent upon those mitzvot. The Baisa continues and develops this idea with numerous other sources, examples, and proofs. But I want to mention one final one, which to me is so beautiful, which he ends the piece on. And that is that the... Medrash, at least in one place, in a Gemara, in Masech seems to compare, in a very favorable way, people to animals. We're like a behema, And of course, it seems on its face very peculiar, and the question is obvious. In what sense are we like animals, and how could that possibly be a good thing? So to answer this question, the Beis brilliantly draws a homiletical or even profoundly philosophical explanation... From the world of halacha, that is the world of kenyanim, the modes of acquisition, the Gemara in Kedushan, and Daf Chavbez, tells us that one of the modes of acquisition according to halacha, one of the kenyanim is known as meshicha, when you pull or draw uh, whatever property you're purchasing into your property, that affects the kinyan, the transfer of formal ownership. The Gemara gives an example of an animal. If you physically pull an animal that you've purchased onto your property, that gives it a kinyan. that the physical drawing onto your property, that's what makes it yours. The Gemara gives a, another example, which would be even for an Eved. If you would physically bring him onto your property, that would also be a form of a kenyan. The Gemara, however, also says that there's another way you can fulfill the kenyan of mashicha that is not physically bringing the animal onto your property, or whatever the, pro- the thing is. but Rather, if you would call the animal in response to your voice, it walked onto your property, even though you didn't physically drag the animal, but we view it as if the animal is responding to your voice, and therefore we view it as if you brought the animal onto your property. However, in this critical point, says the Gemara, there's a distinction, because when it comes with an Eved, even if you call the Eved and it walks onto your property, the Eved is not considered yours, that's not considered Meshicha. Why? Because a human being, all human beings, even an Eved, Do things because they have free choice, free will. They're baalei bechira. Even if you called someone or asked someone to do something, when and if they do it, they're ultimately making that decision on their own. Therefore, we wouldn't view that as you brought the evid onto your property because they responded to your voice. That would be the evid on his own doing it, and that would not be the kenyan. Therefore, says the base of levies. In that sense, Chazal compare us favorably to an animal, in the sense that we're like a behemoth. We do mitzvos even when we know the reasons. We're not doing it because of our own thoughts and our own understanding. We're doing it because Hashem called us. And so to speak, in response to His voice, in response to His Tzivoy, we are called to follow the mitzvos. That is the highest form of mitzvah observance, says the Beis That is what it means to be a tamim. And that's what the pasuk means here with Avram Avinu. As Avram and Sarah begin their journey to the land of Israel, we are told that they brought with them the person or the soul they made in Haran. And the whole phraseology of this part of the pasuk is obviously very awkward and difficult to understand. And this leads Rashi to quote the famous teaching of Chazal in the Medrash that's an allusion to the fact that Avram Megayers Anashim, the Sarah Megayers Hanashim. That is to say, who are these souls that Avram and Sarah brought with them on the journey? They were people who Avram and Sarah respectively had converted to the belief in Hashem, to monotheism, and they were also part of the journey. They went with Avram and Sarah and family on the way to the land of Israel. Now, in the context of our Parsha and this Rashi and this Medrash, it's clear that we are being taught this message and this teaching as a way of expressing Avram's success, his impact as a religious leader, and his devotion and love of Hashem. However, it's positive when it comes to Avram, but it raises the question and it behooves us to investigate that was true for Avram before Matan Torah. But is it still true now, post-Matan Torah? Is it still true, true even in our day? Is conversion a positive thing? Is it perhaps even a mitzvah? Or are things perhaps slightly more complicated or even ambivalent? So first, to start out, we must acknowledge that there are a number of Gemaras which seem to paint a very clear and negative attitude towards the process of conversion. For example, the Gemara in Yvamos and Av tells us that very bad things will befall those people, those Rabbanim, the Beisdin, who accept converts. And the Gemara continues and connects that to an earlier statement of Rabbi Chelbo, who says that the phenomenon, and the reality of converts, of Gerim, are very difficult and painful for the Jewish people, like having some kind of a leprous sore on our skin, Kisapachas. And the curiosity of the Gemara using that metaphor, notwithstanding, we'll have to leave that for another time, but it's clear that the Gemara here is conveying a negative approach and a negative attitude towards the process of accepting converts. Additionally, earlier in Mem Zayin, the Gemara describes the process of what would happen or what should happen if a prospective convert comes to a Din, comes to a rabbi and says, I want to convert. And rather than doing what we would expect Avram did, which is run give the person a hug, accept them, teach them. Rather, says the Gemara, on the contrary, we question her sincerity, we want to find out what they're really motivated by, and we go to great lengths to try to dissuade them from converting by telling them how hard Jewish life is, mitzvot are so hard, anti-Semitism is difficult, we try to talk them out of it. Eventually, if they persist and they come back and back again, so then we actually go ahead with the conversion. But it's an unmistakable impression that we get from the Gemara, clearly conveyed that this is not a good thing. All of that, however, should be contrasted with the fact that there are a number of sources that take a much more positive view towards Gerus, and some that go so far as to even claim there's a mitzvah to accept converts. The one or the later Rishonim, points to a gemara, on Zayin, the very same gemara that we previously saw about giving the ger, the prospective ger, a hard time, but nevertheless, says the gemara, once they pass the test, they cross the threshold and we want to actually convert them, the gemara says, referring to a male convert, we go, go ahead with the circumcision right away. One minute we're trying to talk him out of it, the next minute we're already starting the process of conversion. And the gemara, you know, recognizes the kind of whiplash here, why are we going so fast? My time. why does it have to be right away? Says the Gemara, because this is based on a principle of shihoi mitzvah, lo We have an opportunity to do a mitzvah, we should not delay. Says the Tash it's black on white. Could not be clearer. The Gemara refers to the process of conversion as a mitzvah. In fact, applies the principle of don't delay a mitzvah. Obviously, the Gemara is assuming as clear as can be the actual conversion, the process, is considered a mitzvah. So not a negative thing, and in fact, even a mitzvah. The Tosas HaRosh also says the same thing, it's a mitzvah, but he uses a different proof from the fact that there is a bracha that we say before the circumcision of a ger, Asheh Kedosh Vitzivanu. In the formulation of the bracha, we state quite clearly that there is a mitzvah that we are commanded to do to be involved in this process of conversion. Yet again, we see there's a mitzvah. And what is that mitzvah? To convert a person, where does that fit in? So the Tosos Harash explains, it's part of the mitzvah of loving the ger. The Torah in many places talks about the mitzvah and the obligation to be exquisitely sensitive, respectful, and even love a convert. Now the psukim seem to be clearly talking about someone who's already converted. The chiddush of the Tosas Harash is that once a person has crossed the threshold, once they have made it clear and demonstrated their sincerity and their Worthiness of conversion, then even though they're not even technically a convert yet, we can already apply the principle of Havasager to the prospective convert, and we are already obligated because we love that person to help him or her convert. Fascinating. The rivid also suggests that there is a mitzvah, but doesn't really explain the nature of the mitzvah, but very curiously, when he asks on himself, "How do I know there's a mitzvah? What's the source of the mitzvah?" He quotes the Pasuk in our parsha. Now it's not clear exactly what he means, because he doesn't elaborate on it, but many Ahronim point out, it's difficult to understand at face value. After all, this Pasuk does not seem to be a halachic source. It's a narrative, a Gatic, uh piece of information, it's from Koda Matan The fact that there could be a mitzvah ledoros, based on this Pasuk, which the Raivit clearly is saying, is hard to understand, and even though we don't understand exactly what he means, we have to acknowledge the Raivit says it. More recently, one of the Achronim of Perlau also thinks that there's a mitzvah of accepting a ger, and he thinks it's based on the mitzvah of Ahavas Hashem. Part of our love of Hashem is to accept converts, and it's based on a statement that the Medrash says, that part of loving Hashem is bringing other people to love Hashem, and the Medrash itself quotes, Because Hashem... Because Avram loved Hashem so much, he wanted more people to know Hashem, to believe in Hashem. And we have to be like Avram, and part of our love of Hashem has to bring more converts to Judaism. Lastly, Rav Menashe Klein, a very recent achron, suggests that once a convert is interested in converting, there's a mitzvah on him to finish the job, and a mitzvah on us to help him finish the job. A really intriguing idea. So we started off by seeing sources that clearly were negative, but we then saw some very fascinating sources that are positive about conversion.